1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: In a moment of protective movements, you need more disclosure around what your actions are going to be. There's a lot of stakeholders involved, specifically the military you know, local police and and first responders to be able to move the president here today. So intent, like, like we're not going to find criminal intent on a text message of something. When to execute on that, I'm reliant upon all of these other other individuals. But again, we don't know, right, because we don't have these text messages. And that's the problem. If we're unable to resolve this issue, we're going to have this credibility issue dangling out there for a long time for the service.
3: I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for July 27th, 2022. The United States Secret Service is in the spotlight once again, this time because of deleted texts for the time surrounding January 6th, 2021, and the organization is reeling. To discuss it, I sat down in the Virtual Jungle studio with Juliette Kayyem, formerly Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security, who has served on the DHS Homeland Security Advisory Committee and has written the book, The Devil Never Sleeps. And also with Jonathan Wackrow, Chief Operating Officer of Teneo Risk, who was a long-serving special agent in the Secret Service, including in the Presidential Protection Division. We talked about the use of phones on that job. We talked about the loss of trust and confidence in the Secret Service and its mismanagement of the crisis. We talked about the performance of the Vice President's Protection Detail on that day, and we talked about the Secret Service's status within DHS and the prospect for a Department of Justice investigation of the service. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 27th, the Secret Service Text Crisis. Juliet, set the table for us here. What do we actually know about the Secret Service texts on or around January 6th and what they did with them?
4: <laughs> uh, here's what we think we know, uh, but the story keeps changing. That Let me give the Secret Service the benefit of the doubt and then put holes into it. So the Secret Service, we learned, uh, went through a system instrument upgrade over the course of the period leading to an inauguration. So in and of itself, one could ask, why are they doing this at sort of one of the most sensitive security times? But even giving them the benefit of the doubt, agents were notified to preserve all information on old phones as they were upgraded to new phones or new systems or whatever it is, right? So the the entire new network. That did not happen. And that included the dates January 5th and 6th, uh, which are, at least according to the Secret Service, all but one of the texts of the relevant agents is lost.
3: And do we know from the reporting so far if these refer to government devices or personal devices or
4: both? Both. I mean, I, well, well, they shouldn't be doing any work on personal devices, but as and John can talk more about this, but is often the case when you enter government service, the line between the two can often uh, merge. But this would be the the government ones and not the the personal ones. But like, for example, when you go into when one goes into a skiff or or for any reasons, you give up both your your personal phone and your Work phone, like nothing is accessible or available. So, but there's a merging of it. Everyone understands that because it's just easier to have one phone over two. So, so th- this is their story. They're coming on the Secret Service's story. They're coming on strong with it. Uh, this is a story that was known to the Inspector General, a controversial figure in and of, of himself, uh, for several months, but finally is disclosed to the January sixth Committee, relative investigating this time period, relatively recently. So this is a story that standing alone seems suspicious, but it's not standing alone. And that's what's very important about this story. It is standing in the midst of a series of missteps of which the Secret Service essentially is not fessed up uh, to what happened on January 5th and 6th. Seems to be protecting a person, Donald Trump, and not a process, which is the peaceful transition of power. This includes, of course, what happened in the car that uh, Hutchinson, that Ms. Mm -hmm. Hutchinson testified about. This includes uh, what was going on with his deputy chief of staff, who was a Secret Service agent, who seems to have sort of become full on MAGA and now is returned to the Secret Service. It's just in the context of an overall series of incidents of which the Secret Service is spending a lot of time saying what isn't true. But every time they try to say what is true, here's right. what happens. It doesn't sound plausible. It's, it's it's just it's it's implausible that 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 period is the period in which everything is lost.
3: Yeah, we've got a lot of issues there. We've got yeah. the the issue of what texts are there and were they proper to be texting certain things. We've got issues of the retention and the upgrade at the time. We've got the issue of failing to notify Congress for months about a yeah. deleted series of texts. And then we've got some related issues that have to do with the policy implications. So, John, let me turn to you to start tackling some of those. Let's go back to the day. We've talked many times before about some harrowing days you were on duty in the Secret Service. Were you Texting as a means of communicating with your colleagues and or others about the events of, of your work duty on a regular basis?
2: So I'm gonna date myself a little bit, David.
3: <laughs> Should I say, were you using the telegraph yes. back then when you were an agent? <laughs>
2: exactly. Texting as a means of communication, really in 2014 for us in the service was 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 more limited. I mean, I didn't have a personal phone back then, I had a work phone, and that was it. That's all I had. So everything I did was official. On my government email or or telephone, but the primary means of communication while well, you're doing protection back then, and, and it should be today, is is the radio, right? That direct point to point communication. Now, I think you know because of digital enhancements, social media, all of these other now new influences uh, and really distractions, uh, call them for the service. People are texting. They're texting on personal phones. They're utilizing other uh, apps such as. Uh, whether it's a, a signal, a WhatsApp, other communication platforms to to engage. I mean, that's becoming the norm. But again, it's not right. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing with the Secret Service today is an agency that, that really is in turmoil. And as Juliet was just talking, I'm thinking about, well, what's facing the service today, right? We have missing text messages. We have outstanding issues in questions surrounding you know, what was Tony Honorado's responsibilities as a deputy chief of staff versus his responsibility as a, a uh, assistant deputy director of the US Secret Service. We have you know questions from testimony around what did the agents do with the vice president during the certification as the insurrectionists you know stormed the Capitol, what type of action they were taking, and then there are other things that are you know related there were bombs that were placed near the DNC or a bomb an explosive device by the DNC. Why didn't the secret service catch that? Why was, you know, the, the, the VP elect allowed to, you know, you know be in that environment. So there's just all of these unresolved issues that absent of clarity are just, you know, metastasizing into uh, a, a real negative story about the secret service and the, the chapeau on top of all of this, is that the director has announced that he is retiring, moving on, but now you're going to have this vacuum of leadership. And who's driving resolution and adjudication of these matters, which are so critical? This isn't a minor issue, right? Text messages of January 6th missing that are focused on 10 key agents involved with either the president or vice president, they could have material impact to the overall investigation. the the question about you know tony's position as a deputy chief of staff what type of conversations and insights was he either giving or influencing to change the course that day again those are critical and they remain unresolved so i i think that the service and i've said this publicly they need to stop with the, the the drip 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 of information and they need to Mm -hmm. just rip the Band-Aid off and give Mm -hmm. full disclosure, timelines, detail, whether or not it was appropriate or there was some sort of error made, they have to get in front of all of these issues for Mm -hmm. clarity uh, so we can start addressing each of these these matters individually and then collectively try to clear the, the service's name. Because right now, all, all that's happening is it's, it's complicating matters for them where their credibility is being eviscerated in front of us. And I said yesterday, I think that that credibility issue is going to have a longer term impact. Remember, Secret Service is a law enforcement entity. They bring criminal cases against individuals for violation of U.S. code. How can you have a law enforcement agency that has so many credibility issues you know, perceived credibility issues at the same time that they're trying to prosecute along with the US Attorney's office individuals that have violated the code. So there's a lot at stake right now for the Secret Service.
3: There is. And and you raise a, a lot of issues that I do want to break down, but Juliet I want to turn yeah. to you on one specific aspect of uncovering all of this because John mentions, you know, the Secret Service should be more forthcoming by itself and put all the information out there instead of the drip drip drip. That that's one method. Yeah. Another method is investigation, and that can come in multiple, right. multiple flavors. One flavor is media, right? The media getting sources and reporting on it, as we've seen from the Washington Post and CNN and other sources. There also, of course, is the January 6th committee itself and other vehicles of Congress. But there's also the Department of Homeland Security within yes. which the Secret Service falls and the Office of Inspector General. You've worked within the Department of Homeland Security. You've been on the advisory board. Talk a little bit about the DHS process for investigating the Secret Service. And given that the Secret Service is unique in so many ways, how do you feel about the ability of the DHS IG to investigate this issue and make its results known to the public?
4: So I have a strong belief that the Secret Service isn't that special. And they are making us think they're that special because they have this super squirrely and very important job, but there's lots of agencies in the government that have very important jobs. And this sort of hands-off attitude towards them makes it almost impossible to, to, you know, take a step back, which is what I do. And what I advise, take a step back and just, say, okay, this just, it's just an agency and their righteousness. And I sound a little bit annoyed because their righteousness about pushing back against uh, what are fair questions about uh, their role, their efforts, their management, their transparency? Uh, strike me as something that the Secretary of Homeland Security needs to get a handle on very, very quickly. He's been Ali, my secretary, America's has been relatively quiet, and that you know, you you both are beasts of D.C. as well. That also strikes me as telling that. That, that DHS is not buying the Secret Services story either. He does not want to get his hands on it in some ways. So uh, what I would do is you do the leadership vacuum, which with John was talking about, is also an opportunity. Uh, you need to get someone in here who's not from the agency. This is what People like me recommend when there's an agency in crisis, get someone there who is competent uh, but can bang heads, uh, show some greater transparency, some greater humility by the agency, uh, and then uh, basically split the mission at this stage. One of them is to do a deep dive into what happened and be more transparent and report directly to the secretary. In that regard, you don't need to stick an IG in the middle of it, especially this IG who's... Uh, Trump holdover and has has possibly protected the agency, both protected and undermined the agency. He's sort of hard to read at times. And then the second is that you focus the the 98 percent of agents, 99 percent of agents who aren't in the middle of this crisis uh, to get them to focus on their core and valuable mission. And that's what I would do at this stage. It's the only way to fix it. You, if they pick from within the uh, within the agency, they are doomed Honestly, there's no, there's just no way that you can do this with someone who has risen up the agency. I don't know how Jonathan feels about that, but I feel pretty strongly.
2: Well, you know, Juliet, that's a great point. I, I just want to take a step back. And like all these things that we're, we're discussing with the Secret Service today and the issues that they're facing really amount to uh, uh, an existential crisis for, for the uh, organization. And, you know, in crisis management, that's what I do as my my day job we always have a, we have a saying that says, do no harm, right? In the moments of a crisis, do no harm. Resolve what you have. And what we've seen is that they're continuously having these self-inflicted wounds, one either by the issue initially or how they're resolving that issue. And that leads into the, the leadership question, which is who is going to be the right steward for the Secret Service moving forward? and and i agree with you juliet i think that at this moment in time cuz this is a real seminal moment for the agency to to write itself but you can't do it from the inside there's too many institutional biases of individuals that you know, have come up either you know following leadership of one individual or the other i think that you have to step outside of the secret service get a fresh perspective of how to lead an agency that has a very unique dual mission in modern time, right, like with all of these influences of, you know, political oversight, integration into DHS, collaboration with other law enforcement entities, I think that you have to get somebody that's going to think a little bit differently, and not follow the the same model that they've been you know, operating off of for many years. And if there's any time to really, you know, focus on on that you know significant shift it's today
3: and john you mentioned something that i want to dig into here which is that dual mission so you've got the obvious protection issues mm-hmm. that have been uncovered by the january 6th committee and were were evident even before then but of course part of the reason that this scandal i'll call it is so rich is because of what people like paul rosenzweig have pointed out which is you have the secret service which has some cybersecurity and hacking responsibilities within the U.S. government. And it has a system by which text messages are deleted and cannot be retrieved. That that is at best disturbing about the capabilities of this organization that is supposed to be using such tools and techniques against the bad guys. But also, why would they put themselves in a position to do that, as Juliet mentioned at the top, at a time when there was such intense interest of what was going on. So what do you think about that? Because one of the most common themes that comes out when you talk to people about the challenges of the Secret Service is in a sense, the mission creep. The fact that there's too much going on, it's hard to focus on protection as a leader of the organization when you're also worried about money laundering and you're also worried about cyber issues and you're also worried about national security events that have been designated as such. Do you think that Secret Service has a what I would call a credibility problem when it comes to some of these investigatory aspects of its work?
2: Listen, from an investigative standpoint, the the, the complex electronic crimes investigations that you know the the service undertakes, I really do believe that through the electronic crimes task force and you know other aspects of the Office of Investigations they have really phenomenal criminal investigators that focus on that but the key word there is they need the time to focus on those those very complex crimes uh having a dual mission is very unique for the secret service it's actually you know something that's you know very appealing to many is having the opportunity to work criminal investigations and focus on high level protection but you know i've said in the past you know with all of these mounting challenges that the service faces on the protection side. Right. And when I talk about challenges, I'm talking about the challenge of a, a very dynamic, unpredictable threat environment that they need to outpace, coupled with the, the complexities of electronic crimes and uh, fraudulent schemes today. The Secret Service is at a point where they have to decide what they want to be when they grow up. Right. Like they have to decide what does that future look like now? There are really two camps uh, right now with, with, within the agency of people who say, no, we need to focus on one thing and do one thing really, really well. And there's others that want to hold on to those legacy investigative responsibilities. But to me, that's just looking in, in you know, sort of uh, holding on to the past, not looking to the future. And today, again, I go back to the credibility issue, the mounting problems. I think it's a, a, a moment that they have to seriously consider moving forward, either eliminating their, their criminal investigatory remit or start to uh, downsize that or de-scope it yeah. to, to align to their, their protective missions. But I think that, again, this, is, this comes back to leadership, stewardship, and strategy that the, the, the service needs to focus on moving forward.
3: Juliette, what are your thoughts on this part?
4: Yeah, I, so, first of all, it's hilarious. You know, John and I actually work together on a bunch of projects. But so, th- what's hilarious about it is if you just take the aura of Secret Service out of it, and let's just call it, you know, the Widget Service, the answer is so obvious, right? I mean, in other words, exactly what John's saying, and and that they don't see it is so painful, but also kind of nerve wracking because they do have an important mission, which is. We know how this unfolds, right? The top leadership, I, I, I'm, I'm totally honest about it. I have a game that I play, which is how long will the CEO last? Because CEOs of, of companies in crisis always think they're going to last. And most all the time they don't. You know, like, you know, the head of Boeing or the head of BP, you know, I'm the one who's going to get the company through it. Right, and then right. they're gone after a couple months. So look, you're, you know, these people have big responsibilities and if they fail, they, they don't deserve to keep the jobs. And so it's nothing personal. So this is, you know, so I know how this unfolds. It's going to get worse. There are going to be malfeasance is going to be proven, not nonfeasance. Uh, it's just too coincidental that it's these agents on these days. Uh, there's going to be a mutiny within the Secret Service. Count mark my words because let 's not forget it 's secret service agents that were put at risk on January sixth in particular vice president pence 's detail, which we heard we heard the fear you know whether they were calling home to say goodbye to family members who knows whether that wasn 't hoopla, but they clearly you could hear the the, the concern in their voices about protecting. Uh, number two and let alone number three. So there's going to be a mutiny uh, about, you know, why is the leadership protecting these jerks who are protecting Trump and not the 95% of the agents who could care less the politics of the person that they're training? So anyway, so so that this is how it's going to unfold. So, it, you know, and it's just important to say that because, God, we could put them out of their misery so early. I really do think this re- is going to require a much greater, oversight by the department which has been relatively quiet to date i don't think that that's sustainable i just don't i think this is an opportunity for the department and for the secretary to say enough is enough you know you guys just you're you're in the widget industry right stop t- take the aura out of it and we can protect the core mission while we also fix uh, what is going on because this is all going to come out it's it's too obvious that it's all going to yeah. come out let
3: me ask about one specific issue, and and John, I'll turn to you for this one, is we did have a response to a media inquiry from the chief of communications at the U.S. Secret Service. This weekend, he responded, I I think it was to Lawrence O'Donnell, and this was, was his message. The only text messages on Director Murray's phone on January 5th and 6th were notifications from his alarm company at his residence. By policy, Secret service employees are not to conduct official government business via text for information security purposes, as well as government record retention. That seems to be a a version of giving the Heisman to the press saying, well, there aren't any messages to see here anyway, because secret service employees aren't supposed to be texting official business. So the reason that they're not saying this, but the implication is, the reason that there was a non-responsive search and we're not getting results isn't really because of a migration and a deletion of texts. There's really nothing to see here anyway. What do you make of that? And is this, is this moving the ball forward at all, or is this making it even more difficult?
2: It, well, it goes back to my, my statement. In, in, in a crisis, you know, objective number one is to do no harm. And what we're seeing is by those types of non-statement statements, it's, it's further pushing the the media and the public to you know, to question what the heck is going on over there. And this is where I, I say you have to come out and be fully transparent, one, as to what happened. So I think you have to think back. All of this started, this text message disclosure started not because the inspector general did such a great job and found that the Secret Service didn't have these these text messages. Actually, the Secret Service self-disclosed the fact that there were messages missing. So I'm going to give them credit on that side. But from there, the process to uh, resolve those missing text messages is really unclear. Uh, what type of you know forensic investigations did they do? We've had some broad statements from the Secret Service saying that they're taking you know, uh, all means to, to, to recover you know, said messages. But what exactly does that mean? Has every single owner of those phones sat down and provided a written sworn affidavit that they did or did not text on January 5th or 6th? We don't know the scope also beyond the 10 that are targeted or under the, the, the focus of the inspector general. We don't know if it's hundreds of others of, of agents and officers around the country, or is it just that 10? Like again, the 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 scope, the size, and really the impact of these missing text messages, do they impact ongoing criminal investigations? Do they impact other protective missions? So I think that there, you know, every statement that comes out, there's an order of consequence of more questions that that uh need to be answered and this is where i say that the service needs to take pause they need to run a full tech talk going back to you know when this project started clear timelines discuss what data was lost why it was lost they need to be accountable for any type of violation of the you know federal records act any other type of regulatory oversight in terms of information preservation and it fully disclosed to the public what happened. Now, David, here's the challenge of all of that. The inspector general launched a criminal investigation into the Secret mm-hmm. Service. This is going to make matters a lot worse. His his investigation uh, into the Secret Service is focused on the collection and preservation of, of evidence. Criminal Investigation. That means the Secret right. Service, as a target organization, are pencils down on their own internal investigation. So they are no longer doing these forensic investigations. They are no longer trying to seek out affidavits or investigate this internally. That matter, for all intents and purposes, is closed. So that that cooperation internally isn't happening. Now the the question is shifts to the shifts to the Inspector General does the inspector general for the department of homeland security have the ability to investigate this incident i say no why because it's going to be highly sophisticated in terms of you know electronic forensic investigations i think that that coupled with you know some potential conflicts that the ig has being part of the same department i think that this should shift over to the uh, department of justice at you know just to make sure that
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, And they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers. That this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called people by name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work, of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
3: Juliet, I wanna to come to you on some of those issues, but first, John, to follow up on that, what do you think is the worst case scenario when it comes to the content of these text messages, let's let's put ourselves in a future alternate timeline where we actually do have these text messages. Do you think that Secret Service agents were actually texting things with criminal culpability on January sixth, things related either to the the attack on the Capitol itself or about how to manipulate the situation? Because that does seem out of character with what people do in a crisis situation when you're on the radio you're focused on the mission you're not pulling out your cell phone while you're driving or while you're serving on the protective detail what what is that worst case scenario
2: well the the, the worst case scenario is exactly as you described that you know criminal acts were were engaged in by the the secret service and secret service agents but i hope not right i i i would think that the agency and those those agents are better than engaging in that type of criminal activity. I find it very hard to believe, and this is my personal opinion, that we're going to find a smoking gun in these text messages. I think that the, the text messages have been indicative of, of a larger problem of, of the Secret Service around transparency and accountability. But, you know, uh, some information will be gleaned from it, but you're not going to get messages that say, okay, you know, we're going to, you know, this is our decision. We're going to do X, and we're going to take the president to the the, the capital. I just don't think you're going to have that. And the reason being is that in a moment of protective movements, you need more disclosure around what your actions are going to be. There's a lot of stakeholders involved, specifically the mm-hmm. military, you know, local police, and and first responders, to be able to move the president here today. So intent like like we're not going to find criminal intent on a text message of something when to execute on that i'm reliant upon all of these other other individuals but Mm -hmm. again we don't know right because we don't have these text messages and that's the problem if we're unable to resolve this issue then we're going to have these we're going to have this credibility issue dangling out there for a long time
3: for the service yeah yeah juliet i'd like you to respond to to several of those mm-hmm. points but most particularly the call for the department of justice to in a sense yeah. supersede the dhs ig on this
4: i think that's right i think i mean you know, whether it's a special investigator brought in to work with new leadership at the secret service or doj or even treasury you can imagine Uh, Which used to oversee Secret Service and has some sense of their mission. I I think this is exactly right. There's 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 no reason to give the Secret Service the benefit of the doubt. Now they've lost that, and you know, I mean, this is the thing: is like, literally, if it were a wig, you know, a widget making agency, we would not be thinking about this is hard. It would be so obvious to us what needs to get done. Something is terribly wrong. And at best, it's, as I said, at best, it's non-feasance. At worst, it's real bad malfeasance, kind of scary stuff. And we, we got to, you're not going to, you're not going to move forward. You're just going to be doing more Band-Aids. And I think that's the position that the Secret Service is finding itself in. It tries to put a Band-Aid on. Well, it turns out that the that the that the cut is deeper than they thought and or deeper than they want us to believe. And then more stuff, you know, you need another band-aid. And this is where their 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 calm strategy is really just Honestly pissing me off, like you know it 's one thing to be righteous when you know that you 're right it 's another to be thing to be righteous when you know that you 're wrong, like yeah. you know like and they they know that they 're wrong um, and so i, I don 't like righteousness in a spokesperson in any in any regard, but that 's my that 's my takeaway so I think that That Jonathan is exactly right. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me on this investigation side is I think that this disclosure of the one single text, people who are following along know that the January 6th committee only got one text from this time period. I think that that actually is really damning to the Secret Service in the sense that you really could not call this a technology upgrade flaw, that 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 technology is not that chiseled. It's not, I mean, you're either moving the network or I'm making whatever happened up, but like you're either moving the platform or you're not. So the single remaining text I think is actually more harmful in their narrative, right? You're either going to lose them all or you're not going to lose them all. And I'm always joking around about what's in that single text, you know, like, you know, what's the one, what's the one thing, you know, that they were okay disclosing,
3: right? I saw some speculation that maybe it was multiple devices that for one device, there was nothing recovered, but on a personal device or a second government device that there was one message, but that was speculation. We don't know. Yep.
2: I just want to touch on that for one second, because there's, this is a, you know, the text messages are a secret service issue, right? But additionally, you know, at the time, uh, Tony Ornato was was also using White House small devices issued by the mm-hmm. uh, White House communication agency. Yeah,
3: that's a good point. And
2: I, and yeah. I think it's imp- like, again, this goes to the totality of this matter is not being fully disclosed. And what we're getting is very siloed information. That we're not able to thread together. I also want to know, you know, on that day, if if the focus is on Tony, which I you know have every reason to believe that it is, he was not communicating on a Secret Service phone. He was communicating on a White House communication agency phone, as required by the Executive Office of the President. You know, and and so were those records subpoenaed? Were were those text messages subpoenaed? Do they have those messages? those communications because if he was communicating on a separate device that was not part of that data migration uh, in, in technological transfer, if he was texting somebody within the service we'll have that record. Again, I don't think hope is you know fully lost on trying to understand what type of communication mm-hmm. there was on that day but it's becoming more complicated with this criminal investigation that we're not able to quickly, uh, the service isn't able to sit agents down right now, get sworn affidavits. It now, because it's a criminal investigation, those agents have rights. They're going to have to go through to their attorney. This is going to be a long game, not a quick adjudication.
3: Yeah. Juliet, I, I want to turn to you on a specific aspect of this that, that was just raised. So Tony Ornato is you know an assistant director of the U.S. Secret Service and was heading the security detail for the president but takes a position in the executive office of of the White House as a deputy chief of staff. That is not the source of all of the Secret Services issues, but it it certainly does cross some lines. We do have legislation that bans an active duty military officer from turning right around and becoming secretary of defense absent a waiver, which of course has become the rage in recent administrations to grant such waivers. But is it time for something similar with the Secret Service for legislation that says absent a waiver, people within the Secret Service, perhaps of a certain level, but maybe the whole organization must have, in a sense, a cooling off period before taking any other position, certainly within the White House itself?
4: Well, uh, yes, something along those lines. I mean, this is the extent to which norms that everyone had agreed upon that didn't need to be regulated or uh, formalized, how successful Trump was at beating those down, right? And exposing that they were just norms, that if you got the right person who was willing to violate them, they'd be easily violated. I would have no problem, a member of the Secret Service, leaving the Secret Service and going to work for the White House. They have skills that a White House would want, in particular, in this case, you know, you're, you're, You're sort of the COO of the the White House. It's a complicated place with staff and all sorts of administrative needs. But you don't get to go back and you don't get to retain that salary. This was the crazy part, that that it was essentially a detail. Um, Those are very rare. And if they're done, as we all know in the national security arena, you know, Coast Guard goes over, CIA goes over. There's all sorts of rules about what role you're allowed to take. Right, you're allowed to go to the NSC, but you're you know you're you're not going to be the comms director. And I think a a perfectly good recent example is Kirby, Uh, John Kirby moving from the Pentagon to the White House, a much more political role at the White House. He's gone from the Pentagon as comms person. You don't get to stay. Uh, And so I think that that's that would be an easy rule, right? In other words, if you're taking a job that's in the political beast as compared to the more career staff of the national security staff, that's fine. So, and I think I, you know, I, I, I agree with everything that everyone said, except for maybe, maybe the belief that, you know, Tony is, is not all the problem. Tony is a big part of the problem, which is the agency. First of all, allowing him to do it was just reflective of an agency that catered to Trump in a way that they shouldn't have. Or D and also remember there's a DHS secretary who's a buffoon. At this stage, and and catering to the to Trump um, as well, but I think it. I think it's. I think the agency believes that by protecting him, he's still he's back at the agency. They are in some way protecting the agency, and like they need to pull that band aid too, right? In other words, whatever he did in the name of the agency needs to be exposed for the agency to move forward. And let's let me put it one one last thing. It isn't like, oh, they picked a guy to go be deputy chief of staff. Ornato oh, is, from every person who's ever met him, I've talked to a lot of Secret Service. He's like, you know, uber MAGA. Like he's he's a he's a hot mess of MAGA, right? And why he's allowed to come back to Secret Service in a training position is is a deep deep problem, but once again, this is the secret Service thinking, well if we can just protect him, we're protecting ourselves and once again, treat him like an agency that creates you know that's making widgets and this is an easy problem yeah. you've got it you've got a personnel problem.
2: but you know what's interesting so there's a, there's a couple of things there I would just want to touch on like when this issue of Tony going into the administration, you know, this is an easy thing to shift off of the the Secret Service, again, but they need to get, get out in front of it. I mean, all that was, was it's allowable under the Senior Executive Service under the Office of Personnel Management, right? This, you could call it manipulation of the rules or just adhering to the rules, but this was allowable. And so now you have to go back and say, like, all right, how do you prevent that from happening again, right? Like, what are those thresholds that don't allow somebody to, to get into a, a political position within an administration, as opposed to either a, like a, a more tactical position within a, a, an administration. What, what are those guardrails moving forward? Let's address that because you can't litigate the past. We should look at towards the future, make sure it doesn't happen again. But I think when you, when you describe Tony here, it, it's, it's amazing. because it, I've heard that representation of him time and time again. But, you know, and I, I want to be fair here. I worked with Tony for, for years. I worked with him uh, on the detail in multiple capacities. And when I was on the detail, it, it, it wasn't a Republican-led administration. It was Democratic-led administration. And Tony had a lot of dedication and focus as the, the head of protection operations, as a shift leader, which is a very key responsibility uh, within, the sh- within the detail for Obama, I never saw him waver, like ever. So that drastic shift in just a few quick years into what many people have described, I I haven't talked to him in years, so I I can't give a firsthand account. So I will say that this is secondhand, but very very descriptive to what you described. How did that happen so quickly? What What were those influences? And I think that that's something we need to, to to look at because that wasn't what he was or the person that I knew him as and I and I, I think that again that's that that's is is that an issue within the service is that an issue within government as a whole I think that that's a that's a conversation that should be had
4: yeah I mean I think there's a long line of men that you know are before and afters everyone from Giuliani to the White House physician I mean you know you just you know wait a second is that the person I thought I knew all of them, you know, different different levels, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, you know whether they were taken advantage of or liked what they saw, and it was more akin to to who they were, you know, come in and and perform in ways that you and I wouldn't recognize. I mean, think about the White House physician, what's his name, the congressman now,
2: Rodney Jackson,
3: yeah, yeah. Let me ask about a morale issue, and I'll, I'll bounce this back to you from your time on the detail. I've got to think that right now with the text crisis going on, with all of these questions that we've been talking about here, that it's got to be really tough on the job every day, because in part, some people in the service are, are looking at their colleagues and wondering, are are these people who who deleted text messages inappropriately are these people who you have to have the trust and confidence of your colleagues to do this job well? That's true in many organizations. I would say it's essential in, in the Secret Service. My experience with the Secret Service, both at CIA and at the State Department, when I interacted with officers was that these were people of high integrity who worked very well as a unit. Yes, there were some difficult personalities because we're all human beings, but they were very dedicated to the mission. And morale was something I never thought about when it came to actually executing job duties on, on the part of the agents I worked with. But it seems to me that right now you've got a very different situation. You've got a morale situation that's beyond something like Cartagena with people behaving badly when going overseas. You've got a situation where you are on the job driving a protectee down the street and you're wondering what the people around you are doing, what they've done, whether they're the target of a criminal investigation or not. Talk through what that does to somebody on the job that you were on how that gets in your head and can affect the actual performance of the job duties.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's disturbing to think about first of all, David, but I, I I think that the, those that I have spoken to, and I speak to agents who are currently on the detail or formerly on the detail multiple times a day, I think that's less of a concern for them in terms of consequence. I, I think it's a lower priority of consequence. The greatest, Priority right now is, and you touched upon this, is is the trust and confidence, but the trust and confidence of our protectees, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. and this is something I faced directly after the Cardoheania issue with the First Lady, Valerie Jarrett, the President. Whenever the Secret Service has any type of you know credibility issue facing them, that has a direct impact on how protectees view us and the level of cooperation they give us, uh, because they're wondering, wait a second, what are these women and men doing? What what are their competencies? How can I trust them? Uh, how can I trust you know with them with my children? Those are the bigger factors. And I think that weighs very heavily on agents, because they need to do a job in the moment of like a real tactical issue, they need to execute on their job nearly flawlessly in terms of how to like the process and and i think what's really interesting today is we're seeing a tale of two services right we're seeing like in just two issues if i take the text messages and the the tony issue on one side and the way that the vice president's detail did react you know during the insurrection at the capitol at capitol hill we're seeing you know two drastically different viewpoints we are seeing the agents who were on the vice president's detail. Actually, following the protocol, actually doing what they've been trained to do, focused on you know the the tactical and, and relocation aspects of of the of the principal in a deteriorating uh, environment. And I think that the radio transmission—well, I, I pushed back very hard that they were scared or that they were calling their loved ones. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I think that's just ridiculous. It was a tense situation. I mean, you had agents that were trying to figure out. The window of relocating that vice president at that moment in time was rapidly closing. and the pathways that they needed to go down, you heard like there's, there was smoke deployed. We don't know what type of smoke. So now I have to make an immediate risk calculation. Do I bring my protectee through a smoke filled environment where I don't know if that is a chemical biological uh, you know, hazard that I'm, um, so you never wanna go from one destabilized in, uh, environment into another. So they're doing that consequence uh, calculation like real time. And I think for the first time the, the, the public really saw that they're doing it with masks on because of COVID they're doing. So there were a lot of stressors that were were ongoing, but what did they do? They actually, you know, got the vice president to the right location. No one was injured from this, from the, none of the protectees were injured and then they were able to go to that quick area of refuge and then hold, really, that's supposed to be just a quick check. It took a few hours where the, the president was in the, the, the loading dock area. He was secure, the staff was secure, and his family were secure. You saw all of that, and but that's practiced. That is trained upon. The agents, you relied upon their training, tactics, and experience to, to, to do that. I, I thought that was a big success. On the other side, you see... These stumbles, these missteps, these administrative, you know, hiccups, the, the the non-disclosure. Why? Because administration of the agency is so anomalous for people, right? And I think it's it, it's that that is always the difficulty for the service is how do they govern themselves? It has been, you know, for for a long time, and you know that's why we're we're really seeing this this drastic viewpoint of an agency. One works mm-hmm. well under tactical pressure. But under administrative yeah. pressure, it has
3: difficulties. You really you really lay out that the motto of the Secret Service, which is worthy of trust and confidence. You mm. had two very different takes on that. The, the, the Pence yeah. detail itself, worthy of trust and confidence, just from the insight that we've had, which is beyond what most of us get into an actual crisis situation for the service. Absolutely worthy of trust and confidence, the way they handled that situation. The rest of the organization and the things we're learning about it and the way it handles a crisis, I share your concern that the trust and confidence that's necessary to do the job to uphold the stated values of the Secret Service, of duty, justice, courage, honesty, and loyalty, this is at great risk now. Uh, Juliet, let's close with you. This text crisis, as, as we'll call it it could go in multiple directions from here and you've talked a bit about what you would like to see the organization do but let's talk about what it does within the Department of Homeland Security itself as you know better than most of us DHS is kind of a patchwork quilt of different agencies departments bureaus etc that have very different missions but it is historically one of the cabinet-level departments of the last 20 years that has had the lowest morale overall Yes. apart from this scandal. What does this mean for DHS and for the ability of other organizations that have come under fire in recent years within the department Mm -hmm. to pull themselves together? And I guess what I'm getting at is the bigger question of, is this further evidence for people who want it That
4: to go back at Treasury, yeah.
3: That the Department of Homeland Security is just a flawed home for some of these, and we need to do, in a sense, another reorg and get get some agencies and departments out of there.
4: Well, it's interesting. So I'm of the school that like either commit to the department or do it now but 20 years of debating this is a little bit too long so long ago i you know i was like you know should fema be here or not fema should be is here you know secret service here or not secret service is here so like that's you know give, give me the world as it is not as i want it to be and i'm not sure at least on this crisis that the that the the moving of the deck chairs would actually change it. Previous reviews of the Secret Service when it's found itself in scandals when it was under Treasury had the same complaint that Treasury was too hands off of the Secret Service as DHS has been. So I'll tell you, you know, I, this is what I write about. This is so components have been reformed in the past. So FEMA after Hurricane Katrina is now the FEMA of Hurricane Sandy. It's not perfect. We certainly saw that with Hurricane Maria, but I think a lot of that had to do with the administration. But I think you know, the less we talk about FEMA, the happier we are, and that's that ends up being good. The TSA of the long lines of uh, the summer of twenty, what is it, fifteen? Uh, that there was fourteen that we would then you know bring mm-hmm. in Pete Neffinger and you reform it. And now people, you know, we complain about air travel for a variety of reasons now, but it tends not to be the security lines and we fix a lot of this. So I believe these agencies can be reformed while they're doing their important mission. And I think the department can do it. One of the benefits of the secret service being unique, and now I'll give credit where credit is due. It it has a very unique mission. It isn't making widgets is that you can also isolate uh, the damage. And so I don't my sense talking to other people at DHS is that they can isolate this scandal from from its its sort of core operations where I don't think that that was possible mm-hmm. with, say, uh, the separation of children or Hurricane Katrina, right. like the big scandals that hit DHS. But I do think that this is a leadership opportunity for uh, Ali Mayorkas, who's a friend who I really like. I think I don't get what political strategy is keeping him uh, not at the forefront. I think it's an opportunity for him to assert control over Mm -hmm. uh, a component that's his. And I'm just assuming that there's some calculation about why that's not happening more publicly and it might be happening more privately.
3: Well, because I have such a strong feeling that we are not done with this situation, I will say that we will not stop. We will press pause on this and resume this when we know more. Uh, Juliet, John, thanks for joining me.
4: Thank you for having me. Thanks, David.
2: I appreciate it.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember to get ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare Podcasts. By becoming a material supporter at Patreon.com/Lawfare, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts, and spread the word to family and friends about this and the entire suite of Lawfare audio products, including the aftermath, looking at the issues of January 6th and the investigations into it, Rational Security Chatter, live from Ukraine, and No Bull. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer this time was me. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.